Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll discuss a murder case that we call Betty in a Bag. You guys want me to set the stage for this one? You guys remember this case, right? Yeah, I remember it, Pat. I I think it's best that you set the stage and we'll weigh in on it. This is a little bit of a unique murder, but it kind of shows all the little ins and outs of what a detective goes through on a murder case. So we thought it was an interesting one to discuss. So picture this. It's a warm August morning in the 7-5 precinct in East New York, Brooklyn. It begins on Eldred Island, which is one of about a half a dozen islands in Jamaica Bay off the east coast of Brooklyn. And it's part of the Gateway National Park system. Pat, I'm just trying to picture the island. So when you're driving on a Bell Parkway and you're looking out, can you see it from the Bell Parkway? Like, so JFK is on your left, the Verrazano Bridge on your right. It's just past the Canarsie Pierce. Put it this way. If you didn't have a reason to go to Eldred Island, you would never, ever take notice of it. So picture this, guys. It's a warm August morning in the 7-5 precinct. Now, the 7-5 precinct is known for having a high number of homicides, but they're usually gang homicides or narcotics-related homicides, every now and again a domestic homicide. But you don't get too many murders like this one. So one of the park rangers is actually kayaking out to the island to do some kind of a wildlife survey. I believe he was counting bait fish or something. So Ranger Rick goes out there and... He sees a bag sitting on the, on the shore. You know, what do you think he was thinking when he first saw that bag on the shore, guys? Well, just speaking from experience, um, most people, when they when they see a, uh, a human body in, in something that's not common, such as a bag or, or any sort of crazy position, they, they, they second guess it. They, they start to wonder, is this a body? Is this, it's, it's a little surreal. I, I, they don't understand what's going on. Well, at, the, at this point, it's just a bag. He doesn't know there's a body in it. At this point, it's a bag on the shore. It's like a laundry bag with a drawstring, and he's kayaking up to the island. I mean, I would have been thinking, hey, what's in that bag? You know, did it fall off a, off a boat that was out here in the bay? Did it wash up on the shore? Is it someone's belongings? Is it a bag of drugs? You know, could, could be anything washing up. I would ask him what attracted his eye to that bag. What made him look at that bag and pick out that bag? I mean, think about it. You're on a kayak, you're going out there. There's probably a lot of Yeah, but you the- probably see a lot of driftwood. You might see some refuse. But this is a laundry bag with a drawstring. And there's obviously some content in it sitting right there on the shore. I mean, it, it, was, it would have been hard for him not to see it. So uh, the ranger kayaks up to the island. He approaches the bag. He takes a look and he looks in the opening without disturbing it too much. And what does he see? Two feet, two human feet and some Disney sheets. Wow. This guy went out to do a, a wildlife survey. And what does he find? A dead body washed up on a deserted island in the middle of Jamaica Bay. Now, Chris, where do you think his mind goes on that? Definitely initially second guess if it could be a human body or not. Um, it's, it's almost a surreal experience. He probably gets hit with a, a decomposition smell, makes him realize that this this is definitely a human body, maybe some maggots, some blood. Um, yeah, it's, it's been he, there for at least four days. It's hot. It's August. So August, you're right on yeah. that. So he probably starts to panic a little bit because it's, uh, it's not a common sight. It's not something the average human will see throughout their lifetime. Probably just drops it right away and calls the police. Yeah, well, that's what he did. He notified his superiors. And what happens is there's a response to the island. Now, normally, 
the NYPD Harbor Unit would come and recover a body from a waterway. They have what they call floaters, bodies that are in the water during the cold weather. Usually once it starts to get warm, pop up to the top because the gases expand in the body, kind of like a buoy. Uh, So Harbor does this day in and day out. But what happens is the Coast Guard made it there first, and so did an FDNY boat. So now we have a body in a bag. It has to be treated as a crime scene. So the decisions that are made at this point are, do we bring all the detectives to this island and process the crime scene here? Or do we can we bring that bag without disturbing it too much to the shore? And a decision was made to bring it to the shore because, you know, the logistics of getting everyone that had to take a look at that out to that island were just ridiculous. The Coast Guard actually assisted and, and brought the bag to shore for us. But now we're on land. We have a body in a bag, literally dozens of entities and detectives are responding. You have the local detective squad, you have the homicide squad, you're going to have some patrol entities there to secure the scene for us. You're going to have the OCME, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and they're going to send someone called an MLI out who's going to take a look at it. And everything that's being done is to preserve the scene at this point. So the coordination there is extraordinary. It's well choreographed. So why don't you guys tell us tell us a little bit about the coordination be- between all those entities there. And in this case, even a little more, because now you've got to factor in the Federal Parks Police. Pat, the, uh, these things get very chaotic. You're talking about the Bell Parkway, which has a lot of vehicle traffic. Uh, everybody wants to see what's going on. They're going to see the aviation unit flying. They're going to see the harbor boats out there with the lights on. Um, and then you'll have the patrol units that are going to man uh, the shoreline, like you said, the detectives got to come down, the crime scene unit's got to come down, the medical examiner's got to come down, uh, and it's almost like controlled chaos. It, it's orchestrated very well, something we do every day. And once it's determined that it's a homicide, you know, that kind of trumps things now. Now the phone calls go up through the chain of command. Uh, you guys get notified, the borough commander, the chief of detective's office, and right away the questions go, you know, what, what happened? You know, what do we have so far? Who's the victim? And it just unfolds throughout the remainder of the day through the next few days. Yeah, so what happens here is what happens in every case, and it's not like you see on TV. They're not opening the bag. They're not searching pockets looking for a driver's license or some ID. You know, they're not rolling the body around looking for some kind of a cause of death. That's actually not how it happens. Once they determine that it's a murder, then it changes the play for the next few hours. Right, but another good point is that's not going to be a murder until the OCME determines that it's a murder. We are going to treat it as a murder because there's no way to go back and redo it. But technically, the OCME says whether it's a homicide or not. And we're not going to know that until like toxicology reports come back or if there's an obvious cause of death. So this body right now, since you don't know what happened to it, was it an accidental? Was it an intentional death? This body is the most important piece of evidence right now. So how does that body get handled? So you have the case detective from the local squad, you've got crime scene, and you have the MLI. The MLI is the medical legal investigator, and they're like a physician's assistant that actually examines the body on scene to determine what happened to this person. So on this scene, you'd have the three of them working together. Crime scene would document that body by taking photos. They do a diagram. They'd make sure that any clothing on the body, any type of lacerations, ligatures, any indication of injury, clothing torn, ripped, holes in the clothing, all of that is preserved as evidence as the MLI is processing the body, body temperature, 
looking at the body for any wounds. So this is all done together. And the case detective is documenting it as well. And this is what starts an investigation. So whether this person jumped off a bridge, intentionally drowned themselves, or if it was a murder, which in this case it was, everything is being preserved for that investigation. Yeah. So in this case, what actually happens is upon that initial inspection on the shoreline, they examine the body. They're looking, they're hoping to get a driver's license. They're hoping to get something that's going to tell us who this person is. Um, and they, you know, they struck out with that. But what they did notice was all 10 fingers were missing from this body. Yeah. Someone had cut off all 10 fingers. And, you know, at that point, it's the beginning of the investigation. You have to assume someone did it so there couldn't be any fingerprint identification. That's only one way we identify people. Fortunately, in this case, the body had two tattoos. One was on a hand, and it was the letters B-U-S-S-A, Bussa. The other one was a large tattoo on her leg, and it spelled out Tyone, T-E-Y-O-N-E. And that's very important for this investigation because, you know, the NYPD has various databases and uh, we have a data warehouse. So you could search something like a tattoo, a word tattoo or a picture tattoo. And if we've ever come across that person and documented tattoo before, it'll pop up. So in this case, a very sharp eyed detective saw the tattoos and ran them through our database and bingo. He comes up with someone that had these two tattoos. And that's based on the sharp work of a patrol officer in the 7-3 precinct who made an arrest some months prior who took the time to document those two tattoos. He had arrested a murder victim. And that's how we identified her. So, you know, there's other ways that we identify bodies. In order for a detective to identify a body like this, if there's no identification on them, they look through missing persons reports to try to see, is anyone reported missing recently? That matches the age and the sex, you know, the age range, the sex, the ethnicity. Exactly. If they don't have that, then they fingerprints. And in this case, there's no fingers on the body. And then they go through dental records, the DNA, possibly having a, a sketch artist do a composition of the face. So there's different ways of going about it. And in this case, they went through ECMS and they found that the tattoo matched a woman that was arrested. Yeah. So the, the tattoo comes up with an identity and it tells us the name of a person. So then we go and we look, that person has a driver's license. The driver's license has a photo on it. And it's as simple as bringing it up on your phone these days and looking at the photo on the, the driver's license. And if the body isn't too decomposed, looking at that body and saying, is this the same person? But that gives us a lot more once we know who she is. We know where hopefully she resides. Who did she call when she was arrested? Who some relatives are that she might have interacted with? Um, but one interesting thing that, that that information from our data warehouse gave us was that she owned a car. She had a registration for a car. So now we have a driver's license. We have a registration for a car, which allows us. I mean, most people don't realize you go in and out of New York City, you're expecting that there's license plate readers and your license plate is being recorded. A lot of times it's just for a toll. But there's also license plate readers at different strategic points throughout the city. And on a lot of the police cars also have license plate readers. So we run her license plate through the license plate readers and we could see where her car has been and her car has been parked dozens of times in front of a particular address in east new york brooklyn so now we have 
a place where we know her relatives are because she got arrested there several months ago. She's got family there. She's got a, a child there and she's got uh, a parent there. We also know that for the last 14 days, her car has been in front of a particular address in East New York. So we have two really good leads now because you can go and talk to her family and you can go look where she lived. You'd also check to see if there's any summonses on a vehicle to see how long it's been there for. You know, I don't recall if there were summonses, but the the RMPs with the plate readers had passed her car often enough on the street where she actually ended up living that it was recording the car was in front of a particular address. That's a pretty good indication that that person's living there. So now there's some other investigative decisions to be made. We're going to want to go and talk to that family. But we all know in a homicide case, you're usually murdered by someone that's close to you. You know, it's, it's, it's rare that you're killed by a, a complete stranger. So we're going to want to go talk to the family. She had been arrested based on the complaint of a family member there. So we know there's a little strife there. So we want to strategize. We want to go and get as much information as we can from that family. But we also have to consider that one of those family members might be the murderer. Before you go there, uh, you're going to do a lot of computer checks, see if there's any domestic violence issues with uh, with any parents or uh, spouse. Um, you want to figure out, like you said, you were alluding to, the person you're going to speak to is not the perp. Um, and, but, and it also gives you a good baseline of what's going on in their life. Is the location where the family lives the same location where she's last known to live? It's not. And how that played out for us was... Uh, we decided it would be advantageous to go talk to the family. Uh, so we sent a team of detectives to talk to the family members uh, gingerly, not give them too much information. But at the same time, they're going to know that their loved one is dead because there's no other way to discuss it. So she had been arrested at the family's home for an assault on one of her children. And when we go there to talk to the family, obviously they're in a state of shock and experiencing grief. But we show them, you know, the tattoos and they agree that this is their, their loved one, their daughter and their mother. But they tell us since that arrest, she hasn't been allowed to live at that residence. And she'd been living with what they believe is a cousin. They didn't know exactly where. We know where because her car's been parked there for the last 14 days. So talk to the family, find out a little more about her background. She's a little bit troubled. You know, she had had a couple of arrests, but now we go to that residence where the car has been parked and there's some more decisions to be made. We have to go there. Now it's more likely that the perpetrator is there rather than at the residence, you know, the, the family's residence. So a couple of the first steps you're going to do when you get there, you're going to try to locate that car. Is the car there? Where is her car? The other thing is, you know, I mean, I'm just picturing myself walking, you know, getting out of the car and walking up to that, uh, that building. You know, the first thing I'm looking for are the video cameras here because you're going to go into that. But every good detective knows, go get the super. He knows everybody's business. So now we're at the building. What happens? When the detectives get out there, they're doing a lot of legwork. They're looking for those cameras that you said. They're speaking to people. They're trying to get information from people. And they're trying to figure out when that victim was last at that location or when her vehicle was last used and who used it. Who was going in and out of that house? Cameras are a real vital part of that. It's a really tedious job. You got to look at all the locations, who has what cameras, which ones are recording, and then who has access to those recordings. Yeah. So in this case, the detectives go and talk to the super. They also look at the mailbox listing in the hallway and look for the names on the mailboxes. They see that in addition to our victim, 
there's two other names on that mailbox for that apartment. So now they know there's at least two other people in that apartment that are possible suspects. But in addition to that, you're going to have the super give you access to his video. And when we talk to the super, he says, oh, she had her tires cut out here last week. We indicate that we're going to go up and speak to the people in the apartment that she lived in. And he says, well, you can go up there. I'll let you in, but don't bother. Those people got evicted a few days ago. We thought we had a bingo there, but uh, as everything in, in an investigation goes, it takes twists and turns. So, yeah, if you can establish that she's lived there, and we can, because the super's telling us she, she lived there, yeah, I'd want to process that apartment, look for all sorts of forensic stuff. But, you know, Chris, you and Bill can talk about the forensic stuff, you know, in minute detail compared to what I could talk about. When you have um, murder victims like this, um, strangulation uh, or stabbings, it, it's usually more of a personal nature. A lot of times it's somebody they know, like you said, they live with, there's some sort of relationship there. It gets heated and people don't expect to kill one another, but it, it just happens. That's what happened in this case. You know, so now, now you're faced with an apartment that she lived in, possibly the uh, suspects lived in. Uh, so you have to handle this very carefully. Would you get a search warrant for that at that point? Uh, you definitely need a search warrant. Because uh, there's an expectation of privacy on the purpose part. Search warrants are relatively easy to get in, in circumstances like this. You want to make sure you don't contaminate anything. There's uh, protocols, there's steps to take. Thank God our crime scene unit's very professional in how they investigate murders. In this case, you could make the argument that they don't have any expectation of privacy over that apartment because they're no longer the lessee. They're, they've been evicted. But the smart thing to do is go get that search warrant anyway. You can get it based on the facts, so you get it anyway, just in case. You're securing that apartment. You're securing the garbage. You're roping it off. Police do not cross tape on there, positioning a uniform officer outside that door, just to make sure that any evidence within there is secure. You're notifying the DA, and you're petitioning the courts for a search warrant, which you'll get in this case. One of the other things we want to do is look for the weapon that was used to cut her fingers. It's a cutting instrument. It's a knife. It would have her blood on it, and it also would have DNA on it from whoever used it to cut her fingers off. Right. A little complicated there because we suspect her roommate or one or both of the roommates are our are, uh, perps here. They both live there. Their DNA should be on that knife. It's their kitchen knife probably. But at this point, we don't even know what killed her. There's no obvious sign of trauma to the body other than those missing fingers. And we'll, we'll figure that out with OCME. They're going to let us know what the cause of death is. And then we're off to the races. The medical examiner didn't right off the bat say they had particular hemorrhaging or the, uh, the hyoid bone was broken. They didn't know right off the bat of strangulation? Well, they didn't say the, the hyoid was broken right away. And the petechial hemorrhaging was very, very minute. It was December before they actually gave us a cause and a manner of death. But I'm sure prior to that, like within that first couple of days, they said, hey, this is a strangle job. This is an asphyxiation. Yeah, so it sounds like we're all standing around an apartment now waiting for a search warrant, but that's not exactly what's going on. What's happening right now is there's a whole team of detectives doing all sorts of record checks. And the you know we've identified her two roommates, a male and a female, both have criminal records. Uh, one is alleged to be her cousin, the female, and uh, they've since left the apartment. They've been evicted, but the car is still out there somewhere. And we're still looking at license plate reader hits. And we're still going through video from the building. And lo and behold, what do we see? Several nights prior, the last time, the last day that the super had saw our victim, had seen our victim, uh, 
there's a video from the lobby of the building and it shows her male and female roommate leaving the building with a shopping cart with what looks like that laundry bag in it and something in the shopping cart. They go to the car, they put it in the car, and they leave the location. Think about how the adrenaline's rushing in that detective that discovered that video and that image and that, that bag. They got something. They got something good, and they got a great lead in this case at this point. Yeah, and that detective is thinking to himself, bingo, we're off to the races. But there's another detective out there who's looking at a computer screen and going through the license plate reader hits, and he sees on the same night that license plate, that car, appears at Canarsie Pier, which is only a couple of miles away. And Canarsie Pier juts out into what? Jamaica Bay, where Elder Island is. So in theory, if you dumped a bag into the water, it might wash up on Elder Island. So now this, this is the part in the investigation where everything speeds up and everything's coming together nicely. But there's a lot more work to be done here. You know, we don't know where our two, what we think are the perpetrators are. We don't know if we're going to get any evidence at that scene. So uh, now we have the search warrant for the apartment. You know, what are we really looking for here? You know, are we looking for, we don't know how she was killed yet. Uh, there's no obvious sign of trauma on the bottom body other than the 10 missing fingers. So we would assume maybe there's some blood. I mean, so, you know, we're at the apartment now. We have the search warrant. Uh, what are we looking for? You guys have processed, you know, hundreds of these scenes. Yeah, so, Pat, we're um, we're going to enter that apartment without any prejudgment. Um, we're going to really look for things of forensic nature, science nature, and things that are anything that could support the investigation. The crime scene unit will be married up with the case detectives and and they're going to walk through this whole investigation uh, from start to finish. There's things like basic photography that's going to document the scene. In this case, the victim was wrapped up in Disney sheets. And uh, I believe there was Disney pillowcases uh, in the apartment as well. So you have, you have supporting evidence right there. Um, I know we spoke about in the past as far as blood spatter or blood pooling, uh, when the heart's pumping or when the heart's not pumping. Uh, somebody removed the fingertips from this victim. Uh, and it would make sense that it was done in a private area where, where people couldn't see. So you got a sh strong possibility that it happened in that apartment. Uh, you know, if, if they used a knife, there's bone fragments, there's skin fragments that could still be uh, recovered. So, you know, things like that are very damaging down the road in court. How, how did you get bone fragments in the apartment where you both lived? So, the, you know, the crime scene investigators have a lot of resources available. They have alternate light sources that could uh, still detect blood, even if it's cleaned up. They have reagents like Blue Star that could still detect blood, even though it's uh, cleaned up. And all of these things all come together down the road to prove probable cause that, that a perpetrator killed his victim. Yeah. So, Chris, you hit a good point there. You know, she lived in this apartment. So as far as recovering DNA from the apartment, well, she lived there. Her DNA is going to be there. Uh, as far as blood in the apartment, well, she lived there. Her blood might be in that apartment. It should be in that apartment, actually, in some amount. But I think what we're looking for here is a large amount, a copious amount of blood and the beating of the heart. If, if those fingers were removed 
post-mortem, meaning after she was dead and the heart was no longer pumping, you know, there might not be much blood. And in this case, we actually did not recover much forensic evidence from that apartment. So where are we? We know where she lived. We suspect where she was killed and when she was killed, because we suspect she was in that bag, in the wagon, being put into the car. And the car's now going to Canarsie Pier. But what we get is our two roommates coming back that night with the car and going back into the apartment. On the video, it shows the next morning the male roommate getting back in the car, and there's a corresponding, again, license plate reader hit at Canarsie Pier. So it looks like he took two trips to the pier. But at this point, they're in the wind. So we think we know where she was last alive in that apartment. We think we know how they got her out of the apartment. We think we know how she got into the water. What we don't know is where our two perpetrators are. So again, there's teams of detectives trying to locate that car because the car is no longer there. And the two perpetrators, we need to know, even if we're not going to talk to them yet, we need to know where they are. A lot of times the computer work uh, you know, is invaluable. So license plate reader hits are showing the car goes to the Bronx. They've been evicted. What are, what are people who have no place to live? What are, what are they doing? Hey, sometimes they go to the shelter. So, so we do something called the skims check. We can see who's, who's booked into the shelters. And sure enough, these two people, uh, the male and the female uh, alleged perpetrator, are uh, booked into a shelter in the Bronx. So now we know where they are, and, and the car is there also. We locate the car there. So now we're feeling a little better. We don't have enough to arrest them yet, but at least we know where they are, and we can keep track of them. So did Betty in a bag sleep with the fishes that night? I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. Find out in the next episode of Betty in a Bag on Real Crime NYC. And make sure to follow Real Crime NYC wherever you get your podcasts.